there's Eastern time and there's Central time and there's your time and there's my time and there's God's time. And his time is different than our time and it oftentimes rubs us the wrong way. In fact, many times we think that God is untimely about his time. Sometimes we think he's too early in what he does. Sometimes we think he's too late. It's a big problem. Uh, it's ours uh, because he, almighty God, is always right on time. And that's what we're going to see in a pretty clear way in the text before us tonight as we continue our trek through John's gospel. We start a new chapter tonight. It's John chapter seven. And if you can find your way there, we'll begin right at the beginning, verse one. And you'll see that the Lord Jesus is absolutely right about time. Here's how the text begins. And after these things, of course, that obligates you to reflect on what preceded this text. All manner of miracles and teaching and preaching and healing. After these things, Jesus was walking in Galilee. I have been there. It's a real place. We are not reading mythology. This is historically verifiable. The Bible is reliable. Galilee is a province, an area in Israel, specifically in the northern part of Israel. This text tells us this Jesus was walking in Galilee. Why? Well, for he was unwilling to walk in Judea. So if Galilee is the northernmost province, the one immediately below it is Samaria, and then further to the south is Judea. Those are the three provinces in Israel. From south, going up north, Judea, then Samaria, in the middle, and then Galilee in the north. This text tells us he was active in the northernmost province, Galilee, specifically uh, his headquarters there being in a place called Kfarnachum. Kfarnachum. And I say that to you because I had to clear my throat. I got a little cough. Uh, that's Capernaum, Capernaum. That was where he established his base of operations in Galilee. So he was ministering there, and the text tells us because he was unwilling any longer to do so in the southernmost province, Judea, and we're told why. Because the Jews were seeking to kill him. So uh, the Lord Jesus determined it was time for him to depart from Judea and to continue his redemptive work in Galilee. And so we read, Jesus was walking in Galilee, for he was unwilling to do so in Judea. And the text again makes it clear because the Jews were seeking to kill him. So please allow me um, to say a few words that are um, important to me and ought to be to everyone. I realize I'm a little sensitive because when it talks about these Jews, I are one. So. So I admit to you, I may be a little more sensitive uh, perhaps than I ought. But I think in the interest of accurate biblical interpretation, I'm on good ground to tell you what I'm about to tell you. Uh, when you see the phrase, the Jews, in most cases, not all, in most cases in the Gospels, it is not a reference to the Jewish people as a people group. In fact, 
I don't want to shake you here, but I have to tell you, this translation in my English translation and yours, the Jews, is a mistranslation. Uh, remember, our English is based on the Greek which underlies it. The Greek word here for the Jews is the word from which we get the word Judeans. Judeans. What does this mean? The Judeans were those Jews specifically in Jerusalem, the principal city of Judea, who were the religious authority figures of Israel. They were seeking to kill Jesus. An isolated, specific, limited group of Judean Jewish religious leaders. The problem with the translation, the Jews, is that it has given people historically permission, well, frankly, to kill my people. We are Christ killers, we're told. You Jews are seeking to kill our Lord. In fact, the Nazis used to wear belt buckles on which it said, you killed our God, now we kill you. Can you see why my people have a bit of a hesitation about becoming a Christian? <laughs> so uh, this mistranslation, I don't want to make more of it than I should, has uh, through the uh, years uh, given rise to all kinds of uh, justification for anti-Semitic behavior. Folks, I'm going to show you as we go through this text, you'll see clearly this is not an indictment on the Jews, that F. Nick group. This is an indictment on the Jewish religious leaders. And isn't that always the case? It's the blind, false shepherds of the people always leading the sheep astray. And it's those the Lord had a real problem with. So the Judean religious leadership located in Jerusalem, the principal city in Judea, were seeking to kill this Jesus, that's exactly what was happening. And so the Lord chose at this time to leave Judea and continue his ministry in Galilee. Why? Uh, was he uh, afraid to die? <laughs> no, folks, he came to die. He, he was ready to die. He was willing to die, but not on anybody's time except his father's. He was constrained by the divine timetable of his father, not anybody else. And so he relocated at this point from Judea to Galilee because he had no desire to be a martyr. No, in fact, he came to be the savior. And he would die for sure, but in his time. And so this is what's happening, verse two. The feast of the Jews, we have a lot of these, by the way, and they're, they're mentioned in Leviticus chapter 23. Now, we know specifically which feast of the Jews this is because we're told the Feast of Tabernacles was at hand. Feast of Tabernacles. So in Leviticus chapter 23, God has given the appointed feasts to Israel. There are about eight of them. But about three of the eight require Jewish males over the age of 20 to go up to Jerusalem if they were able economically to make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem, and if they were male and over 20, they had to go up to Jerusalem on three occasions, this being one of those occasions, on the Feast of Tabernacles. And what is this holiday all about? 
It's a commemorative day to remember the fact that God sustained Israel during her 40 years of wilderness wandering when she was freed from slavery. And they lived in temporary dwellings, tabernacles or booths. And so the Jews in this day, and folks down to this very day, construct huts, uh, sometimes in their backyard or on a porch or somewhere in the community, and they decorate the hut with fruits and vegetables because this is an agricultural festival, and it's also kind of like Jewish Thanksgiving. It's a time to thank God for the harvest. And it's kind of a, a reenactment, if you will, of what their ancestors experienced when they lived in booths during the wilderness journey. And they thank God for sustaining them then and even now. So this is called the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths in Hebrew, Sukkot. This is the festival, festival of Israel known as Sukkot. And so uh, the Lord Jesus was a Jewish man. Um, I must tell you, when I first was hearing about Christ, that was a surprise to me. I had no idea. You may, you may find that to be humorous because you, your, your backgrounds are different and you're more uh, spiritually educated than I was. And so I thought, folks, I thought Jesus was Catholic. I, I thought he was the first Catholic or something. And then when I found out he was Jewish, kind of freaked me out. I didn't, I didn't know how to take to all of this. But now I'm persuaded of it because I'm reading the book. And since he was a Jewish man, he was planning to go up to Jerusalem during this pilgrim holiday, the Feast of Sukkot or Tabernacles, along with everybody else in order to acknowledge the day. And so his brothers, verse 3, therefore said to him, his brother said, depart from here, leave Galilee, go, go south, go into Judea. Why? Well, that your disciples also may behold your works, which you are doing. So let me just comment on this that you see right up front. See where it says his brothers? Is it news to you that the Lord has brothers? I mean, actual brothers. Is that news to you? It is to someone. Do, do you know some people... Uh, claim that um, Mary, Miriam, um, was a perpetual virgin. Yeah. Therefore, when it says brothers here, it's a reference to the cousins of the Lord. That is not true. These are brothers. Their big brother is Jesus, Yeshua. But he had half-brothers, and they were the product of Joseph and Mary. Why do I say half-brothers? Well, because he was the product of Mary and Almighty God. He is the Son of God, is he not? So anyway, he, his brothers say to him, leave here, go there. Why? Uh, you know, disciples, let them see what you're doing. That's essentially what, you know, what they're saying. And they go on to say, for no one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known publicly. I mean, if you want to be known publicly, big brother Jesus, they're saying, then spread the wealth, go south, and you know, demonstrate a few of your miracles there. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. So his brothers, I suppose they meant well, but they're acting like campaign managers now. 
It's essentially what they're saying. This is the counsel you get from a campaign manager. You know, leave this rural area, just a bunch of smelly fishermen up here in Galilee. Go south, that's the religious center of the world. That's where all the big guns are. Go over there and pull off a few more miracles. I mean, you already did one thing in Jerusalem. Remember, you, he healed the man at the pool of Bethesda. Remember that, who was sick for 38 years? I mean, they're essentially saying, but you've done a whole lot more up here in Galilee. Go down there, spread the wealth. And, and you know why they're saying that? I mean, last week, we read about a lot of his so-called disciples leaving him, abandoning him, turning their back on the Lord. And they're saying, go down south to uh, Jerusalem and recoup your losses. Get you some new followers. That's essentially what they're saying. And frankly, from a human point of view, what they're saying makes sense. But they don't know what they're talking about. They don't get it. Why not? Well, verse 5 tells us why not. For not even his brothers were believing in him. Folks, the Lord's own brothers did not accept him for who he is. Do you have family members who don't accept your testimony of who the Lord is? Almost all of us do. It's a grievous thing. We ache for them. We do what we could and we grieve oftentimes over the lack of responsiveness we see from them. If that's your situation, this verse alone ought to tell you, you are not alone. The Lord Jesus can understand your situation not even his brothers were believing in him. It must have been a great disappointment to God's son to be rejected by members of his own family. I mean, how could they not believe they heard his teaching, they saw his miracles, they were in his very presence, yet they did not believe. It seems incredible, doesn't it? And yet that's what happened. But take courage, I'll tell you why. We know, as we read further in the scriptures, at least two of the Lord's brothers eventually came to faith. They did so after he was crucified, resurrected, and they saw him alive from death. One of those brothers, we refer to him as James, is a writer of one of the New Testament books, isn't he? And we know he became the leader of believers in Jerusalem, the Lord's brother James. By the way, that's not his name. I know I'm shaking up the system over here, and, and the reason I'm doing it is because I'm getting older, and when you get older, you don't care. <laughs> that's the privilege of getting older. You just... if, if folks, um, there is no James. His name is Yaakov, which in English is Jacob. How did we go from Jacob to James? I'm going to tell you how. Centuries ago, folks who embraced hatred and contempt for my people, so-called Christians, decided the Bible looked too Jewish. So they changed names they changed Miriam's name to Mary. They changed Yaakov's name to James. And there was another brother of the Lord who also later came 
to accept him, and his name is Yehuda. Jude. Jude? <laughs> that is not a Jewish name. We wouldn't even know about that if it weren't for the Beatles. <laughs> Where'd you get Jude from Yehuda? Yehuda translates to Judas. And do you know what early translators of the Bible did? They didn't want people to confuse that Judas with the Judas who was the betrayer of the Lord, so they took it upon themselves to change his name from Yehuda, Judas, to Jude. I grieve over this because we have to really work hard in sharing the gospel with my people because we have made the faith look so foreign to them when in fact it's Jewish through and through. Forgive me for being so obnoxious, but the last time I checked, the Messiah, the Savior is Jewish. And uh, we have so... Gentilize the faith. Our work is really, really hard. My people think they have to cease being Jewish to accept Jesus. No, they don't. All they have to do is complete their Jewishness by accepting the Jewish Messiah. Okay, so, so uh, later on, post-resurrection, at least two of the Lord's brothers come to accept him. And I share that for this reason. Folks, don't ever give up on uh, uh, seeking to win your relatives. Never, never, never. You always pray. You always speak as you have opportunity. In fact, you ought to take the opportunity to share something like, oh, I don't know, something like this. Let me tell you about the greatest thing that ever happened to me. It's when I realized that God was willing to forgive all my sins. Through the death of his son Jesus on the cross in my place for all my sins. What I've done over the years with relatives who I can't have a face-to-face -face conversation with is I've put something like this in a letter. I've shared my heart in a letter. I've told them I'm, do I'm sharing this with you because I love you. I know this may offend you. I don't mean to. But I have found in Jesus the Messiah a blessing beyond words, and I want you to as well. Please give this thought. I would love to chat with you. I've done that over the years. In most cases, no immediate response. In fact, my mother, who lived to be 100 and was a believer, uh, lamented the fact, she would tell me often, that in spite of her efforts um, she hadn't seen any of her relatives come to know the Lord, none of her family members. And she explained it on the basis of the inadequacy of her personal testimony. That's, that's how she explained that. I tried to explain to her, no, Mom, that's not true. It's the gospel that's the power of God for salvation, not the one who shares it. We don't have that power, but she would um, reflect on this. and Why is there no fruit? And my, my mother lived a very consistent Christian life and prayed uh, often and shared whenever she had an opportunity. And uh, 
in God's time, once again, not ours. My mother, I would think God was a little late, but no, 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 he's always right on time. All of a sudden, many of our relatives came to know the Lord. I mean, many of them. And then I was sitting at my mother's bedside. She was in an assisted living facility here just a few months before she passed away. And the phone rang, and it was my older sister, my only surviving sister, calling. She said, Stuart, how's my little brother? Good, uh, her name is Cynthia Goodson, how's my older sister? This is how we used to do it. She said, I'm doing really good. I called because I wanted to tell you something. I said, what is it? She said, I want you to know She said, I want you to know I have accepted Jesus as my Savior in her 80s in a nursing home. I told her, Sin, this is wonderful. Would you tell mom I'm here at her bedside? I'll put the phone up to her ear. My mother's hearing was really bad. I put the phone up to my mother's ear, I told her, this is Cynthia, she has something to tell you. And somehow, my mother heard and understood. And so my mother, before she passed into glory, got to hear of the salvation of her eldest daughter. I share that with you because we must never, ever, we never give up. We never say, that's it. We, we never turn our backs on our family members. We always pray for them. We always live a consistent, we try to live a consistent Christian life in front of them. And we always share with them the infinite riches of the Lord Jesus Christ as they allow us the opportunity. And we leave the results up to almighty God. So uh, anyway, um, back to the story. I told you the feast here is tabernacles, right? When we were in John chapter 1, when you and I were just children, it was a long time ago. Do you remember this verse and the word, and we were talking about how the word is a reference to the Lord Jesus, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father. That's John chapter 1, verse 14. Listen to how it really is, it should be translated. And the word became flesh and tabernacled amongst us. As the Israelites lived in temporary dwellings called a Sukkot, a tabernacle, Almighty God reduced himself in a temporary way to flesh to dwell amongst us. Not permanently that way. Up from the grave he arose. He's seated at the right hand of the Father right now. One day. Oh, no, no. People are not going to bow before him as a booth. They're going to bow before him as king of kings and lord of lords. But don't you think it's ironic and tragic that the Lord's own Jewish brothers, concerned about going up to Jerusalem for the Feast of Tabernacles, caught up in the religiousness of it all, missed the tabernacle of God right in their midst. Ah, that's what happened. So it says in verse 6, Jesus therefore said to them, 
my time is not yet at hand. That's the second time we read about this in John's Gospel. The first time when he said, my time has not yet come, he said that to his mama, his Jewish mother. Remember at the wedding in Cana? She wanted him to perform on her timetable, and he was operating on his father, heavenly father's timetable, not his earthly mother's timetable. And he said to her, my time has not yet come. This is the second time. Now he's saying it to his brothers. No, my time is not yet at hand. Your time, however, is always opportune. What does that mean? I think it means this. Uh, they could use their time as they please. Why? To be honest, there was nothing significant about their life. It was just life lived. You get up, you live, you, you go through the day, you go to sleep, you get up tomorrow, you do the same thing. No real purposefulness to it. Nothing of earth-shattering significance. You know, get all the gusto. If it feels good, do it. Squeeze out of life, whatever pleasure you can. That's all it is. And so he's essentially saying, you are constrained by nothing. But I am constrained by the will of my Father. Your time is always opportune. Go here, go there, go do this, do that. But I say, Father, what would you have me do? Is this the right time? And so that's what he's essentially uh, saying. And uh, notice, he, he is not at this point saying he will not go up to Jerusalem for Sukkot. What he's essentially implying is, I won't go on your terms. That's what he's essentially saying here. And so he goes on to verse 7, the world cannot hate you. That's what he said to his brothers. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me. It hates me. Why? Because I testify of it. What, specifically? That its deeds are evil. So they could come and go as they please. They are not confronted by the world in which they live since they are not confronting the world in which they live. But he is. It is different for them than for him. He confronted the world's wickedness and was therefore hated by the world. The world has no quarrel with its own. And so, folks, as much as it is a temptation for you and I as Christians to fit in, be accepted, get along, don't do it if it means compromise. Our role is to be distinct in the world, but not of it. Our role is to operate according to a different timetable, worldview, and value system. And that's going to cause the world to be a dangerous place for us. I read today about a country in the world where ISIS, no, not ISIS, a group like ISIS, it was in Africa, uh, an extreme group, were knocking on doors in a community to search out who are Christians and then they killed them on the spot. I read that today. The world is a dangerous neighborhood and it is increasingly becoming that for believers. Count the cost, pay the price for who else has words of eternal life. Where are we gonna go? Uh, folks, our attempt to be relevant <laughs> 
and to fit in is backfiring. We have so succeeded in so doing, the world can't see us to be different. We look like them, we act like them, we do the same things as them. I'm not saying we should be weird and odd, but distinct. That's what it means to be holy, to be a separated people. And so the Lord is saying to, to his brothers, you just fit in. Uh, the world doesn't confront you. You don't confront it, but it's different for me. I confront its uh, 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 sinfulness, its corruption, and therefore the world hates me. And so he says in verse 8, go up to the feast yourselves. I, I, I don't go up to this feast because my time has not yet fully come. Again, he's not saying he won't go. He's just saying not on their terms. And having said these things, verse 9, to them, he stayed in Galilee. But when his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he himself also went up, not publicly, but as it were, in secret. He went up to Jerusalem for the occasion of Sukkot, but he went up on his terms, not those of his brothers. He went there uh, with discretion. And the Jews, verse 11, now I think if you pay attention to the context, you're going to see what I said earlier is true once again. This is a reference to the Judean religious leadership. The religious leadership, the capital of Judea being Jerusalem, that's where the Jewish religious leadership were headquartered. These Judeans, the Jews, therefore, were seeking him at the feast and were saying, where is he? Now, why did they expect him to be there? Because they knew Rabbi Jesus was an observant Jew who never violated the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. He kept and fulfilled Perfectly. In fact, he's the only one who ever did. The law of Moses. And so they knew this observant Jewish rabbi Jesus would be there on Sukkot. So they're looking around for him. And then it says in verse 12, the, the Judean religious leaders are not the only entity there. Look, verse 12. And there was much grumbling among the multitudes. Multitudes of whom? Jews. So you have the Jewish religious leadership referred to as the Jews in verse 11. But then you have another group of Jews, the multitudes, referred to in verse 12. And there was grumbling amongst themselves. Some were saying about Jesus, he's a good man. Others were saying, no, 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 he's not a good man. He leads the multitude astray. So can you see the difference between the Jewish religious leadership and the multitudes of Jewish people? The Jewish le religious leadership were wanting to find Jesus to kill him. The Jewish masses wanted to figure out who he really is. So you have the Jewish religious leaders, and then you have the multitudes of Jewish people. Folks, <laughs> how could it be that the term Jews is a reference to all Jews when all the followers of the Lord in the first century at the beginning were Jews? When all of his disciples were Jews? When he's a Jew? How can, be this, an, how can this be an indictment against all Jews that justifies things like gas chambers? Folks, that's called a gross misinterpretation of scripture that has led to unbelievable hell for my people down to this very day, and we're seeing more of it on the horizon. So uh, 
They're grumbling. Are they grumbling at Jesus? No, no, no. Look what it says. They're grumbling. There was much grumbling among the multitudes. They're not grumbling about Jesus. They're, they're grumbling to each other about him. They're not grumbling to him. Why? Why is there this? The grumbling is like an undercurrent. Why, why is there not a more uh, expressive vocalization of their opinions about who he is. Here are the opinions. Some say he's a good man. Others say, no, nah, no, nah, he's leading the multitudes astray. Hey, I want to ask you, of those two opinions, which do you think is the better one? He's a good man or he leads the multitudes astray? Which one would you applaud? I hope neither. Both of them uh, render Jesus to be much less than he claimed to be. He's not merely a good man. Listen, he claimed to be the son of God, the savior of the world. He claimed to be the beginning and the end. He claimed to be the way, the truth, and the life. If he was none of those things, then how could he be a good man? It would make him a liar. People who refuse to acknowledge Jesus for who he is say, look, I don't want to be a nasty person. I'll just say he was good. How could he be good if he claimed to be God and was not? That would make him a liar. So both of these perspectives on him fall far short of who he actually is. And yet at least Jesus has been made an issue amongst the multitudes of the Jewish people. They're discussing who is this unusual rabbi? He's the one who multiplied loaves and fishes. Isn't he the one who healed that guy? By the way, he did it on Shabbat. He did it on, I means we're having this, this discussion. It's kind of a healthy sort of discussion, but it's sort of quiet. They're being very careful about it. Why is that? Well, uh, verse 13 tells us. No one was speaking openly of him, look, for fear of the Jews. Now, what do you think that, who do you think that phrase, the Jews, is a reference to again? It's the Jewish religious leadership. Otherwise, we have to translate this, no Jewish person was speaking openly of him for fear of Jewish people. The Jewish people were not speaking openly of him because they were fearing their own religious leadership. You know why? If these people chose a perspective on Jesus that differed from their rabbis, the rabbis could put them out of the synagogue and the rabbis could put them out of the community. And by the way, that happens in our communities today. And that happens in Israel today. It costs and so what they were doing is their religious leaders, they knew, did not allow them freedom to make Jesus an issue and to express their opinions about him. So they kind of went underground. And I want to tell you this. Though these Jewish relig religious leaders and frankly religious leaders of many other religions kind of stifle <laughs> their followers, uh, God doesn't. God is not threatened when you or I talk about his son openly, this Jesus. And God is not even threatened when you have questions about him and unashamedly broach those questions. God permits it. God invites it. And because we here want to do godly things, we invite the discussion as well. So I, I want to offer myself to you 
after this evening, if you have thoughts about Jesus, and maybe they're non-traditional thoughts, you don't see him to be a sa the Savior, you don't see him to be God enfleshed, you have questions about him, but he's an issue in your mind. I would love to talk with you and exchange our thoughts. Um, however, if you're going to embrace a position about Jesus, could I encourage you to do so with utmost care? Because it's an important issue. So to make your quest easy for you, unless I'm wrong, there's only three possibilities about who he is, and they all start with the letter L. He is either a liar. I mean, if he claimed to be the Son of God, the Word made flesh, but is not, then he is a liar. Or the second possibility is that he's an egomaniac. He's a lunatic. So you want to search the evidence to see if he shows signs of a psychiatric pathology. Before you uh, uh, embrace the position that he is uh, crazy, um, you, should, you should be careful and you should know something about what uh, psychiatric disturbance is about and see if any of it is evidenced in his life. So that's your second option. One, Jesus is a liar. Two, he's a lunatic. And the third option starts with an L. What do you think that one is? He's Lord. Uh, there, are no, there are no other. I mean, let's, let's not embarrass ourselves with he was a good man. Let's just save ourselves from that foolishness. He claimed to be much, much more than that. If he is not, he can't be good. So he's either a liar or he is a lunatic or he's the Lord. When I was a new Christian, we learned uh, this little song, he is Lord, he is Lord. He is risen from the dead, and he is Lord. Lord. Yeah, and um, that song to this day means a lot to me. I embrace the third option, that he is not a liar, and he's surely not a lunatic, he is Lord. And you know uh, the evidentiary basis upon which I come to that conclusion? It's the resurrection. He is Lord, he is Lord. He is risen from the dead. So in your quest to figure out who the real Jesus is, you have to explain the resurrection. I would love to chat with you. I think I could submit to you evidence for the resurrection. And if you're persuaded by the evidence for the resurrection... Your next decision is, are you going to bow before Jesus as Lord? A mere liar and fraud cannot win victory over death. A lunatic is not one of whom we could say, up from the grave he arose. The resurrection settles the matter about who Jesus is. He spoke about it in advance and if it happened, it vindicates all of his claims. 
So in your quest to figure out who he is, I've made it simple. You have three options. They all start with the letter L. I suggest you opt for the third L, uh, that he is Lord, because of the resurrection. If you can explain away the resurrection to me, I'll give you a dollar. I don't know. I'm trying to think of something. Uh, I really wish you'd give me a call. Or, or before we leave tonight, let's set up an appointment. Let's talk. Religious leaders of the kind we're reading will stifle your thinking, but we won't. We want to invite it. Think about Jesus. Consider Jesus. It is important.